Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of True North True Crime on Patreon. Thanks for joining us. We are excited to be bringing you bonus content on Patreon. This will give us an opportunity to cover cases we may not cover on the main feed, add bonus episodes talking about the cases, as well as find industry professionals to interview on crime and crime prevention. We are looking forward to building out this new platform to experiment with different types of content, and we're glad you've decided to join us. Let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are talking about the 1990 murders of Sharon Huneman, who was 47 years old, and her mother, Doris Leatherbarrow, who was 69 years old. The murders of these two women have played out in courts and parole board hearings for over three decades in British Columbia. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, court documents, and some very specific blog posts. This case has also been the subject of a book called Such a Good Boy by author Lisa Hobbs Burney. That book was made into a TV movie called Scorn. As an additional content warning, this episode deals with two brutal murders. These details may be disturbing for some listeners, so please take care of yourself if you choose to listen to this episode. This case kind of takes place between two cities in two different regions of British Columbia. So in order to tell this story, we have to do a bit of a geography lesson. Victoria, British Columbia is located on Vancouver Island. For most residents of Vancouver Island, they access Vancouver and the mainland of British Columbia by a car ferry known as the BC Ferries. The ferry service from the island to the mainland is an extension of the Trans-Canada Highway. For those traveling from Victoria, they take a ferry from the island at Swartz Bay. The ferry takes an hour and 35 minutes, and then it stops in a town called Tawasson. Most people then drive the 40 minutes from Tawasson into Vancouver. So it's important to highlight here that the Victoria to Tawasson connection is one of the most important travel arteries in British Columbia for people living, working, or playing on Vancouver Island. Depending on where you are in the province, you pronounce it either Sawasin or Tawasson. Either way, it is located on the southern coast of British Columbia's lower mainland, just outside of Vancouver. The mostly residential community is technically a suburb of Delta, but most people connect mentally Sawasin with Vancouver. There are long rolling fields of agriculture in the area. It has great schools, nice homes, and is the perfect place to live for people who want to be close to Vancouver, but don't want to deal with all the Vancouverisms of a large city. 69-year-old Doris Leatherbarrow was a resident of Tawasin in the 90s. She was not always from British Columbia, though. Doris was born in Calder, Saskatchewan in 1920. She was the oldest of seven children who grew up near poverty in a rural farming family. Doris did well in school, but joined the workforce when she was 15. Eventually, she married a man who worked in the shipyards. She gave birth to her daughter Sharon in 1943. Sadly, her husband died in a workplace accident. Doris knew she needed to find a way to survive and provide for her daughter. Doris eventually moved to British Columbia and landed a job with unemployment services. But Doris had bigger dreams than her government job. She dreamed of owning her own dress shop. 
Eventually, she saved enough money to make that dream come true, and she opened her own storefront. She married again to a man named Renee Leatherbarrow. With their strength as a couple, they managed to expand Doris's businesses, which grew into a chain of four dress shops. In 1989, Doris was an incredibly successful person. She had her shops, her beautiful Tawasan home, and a net worth of about $4 million. The valuation of that money today would be about $9.43 million. Doris spent a lot of time with her adult daughter, Sharon. Sharon was born in March of 1943. In 1990, she was 47 years old. Sharon lived in Victoria, British Columbia in a very desirable neighborhood. She was on the payroll with Doris's dress company, so she would often come over from Victoria to Tawasson on the BC Ferry to work with her mom. Sharon would spend a few days working with her mother Doris in Tawasson and then spend the other days raising her teenage boy Darren in Victoria. Sharon had been married three times. Her most recent marriage was to a man named Ralph Huneman, who was a professor at the University of Victoria. Her son Darren was from her second marriage to a man with the last name Gowan. Her newest husband, Ralph, helped raise Darren. Darren took Ralph's last name and is known to the world as Darren Huneman. Sharon's 18-year-old son, Darren Huneman, was born on September 19, 1972. As a child, he knew the rules and was always the perfect little gentleman. He was polite and polished. Growing up in 10-mile points surrounded by large houses, arbutus trees, and ocean views, Darren only knew the spoils of success. His mother, Sharon, worked with his wealthy and successful grandmother, Doris. His stepfather, Ralph Huneman, worked as a professor at a prestigious Canadian university. Darren was not one for physical sports. Instead, he spent quite a bit of childhood with his grandmother and mother, and they doted on him. In fact, his grandmother, Doris, had also recently written her will to include Darren. The following is an excerpt from the book Such a Good Boy by Lisa Hobbs Burney. Quote, By the time he was in the third grade, he had learned the rules. He had to be clean, polished, polite, under control, understanding, and always very nice to other people. Darren interacted differently with his peers at younger ages. He didn't engage in physical sport often, but was very popular due to his financial status. He became involved with a group of role players in the popular game Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Darren was enrolled at Mount Douglas Senior Secondary School. This is a place where wealthy kids like Darren mingle with working class kids whose parents were just hoping to send their kids for a better education. As a teen, there was a narcissistic charm to Darren that made people gravitate towards him. He was actually in a school play in which he played the lead in a production of Caligula. Now, for those unfamiliar with this play, this is a bizarre and bloody depiction of the rise and fall of the Roman emperor Caligula. In 1990, Darren's life was going well. Doris and Sharon had bought him a car, he had friends, he had a D&D group that met often, he lived in a desirable neighborhood. He had recently started dating a 17-year-old girl by the name of Amanda. Darren had also started hanging out with two other teens. One was Derek Lord. Derek was 17 years old and he was from a close-knit family. He had an IQ of 136 and excelled academically. However, he could sometimes come off as immature for his age. The other boy, David Muir, who was 16 years old in 1990, was shy with girls his age and sometimes socially awkward. 
He also did well in school. He did get into a little trouble, just shoplifting, but that incident was handled internally by his family, who were very much a part of his life. During the first week of October 1990, Sharon drove her car from her home to the ferry terminal. She parked in the parking lot and boarded the ferry as a foot passenger. When she arrived in Tawasin, her mother Doris picked her up at the ferry terminal. The two women set to work for the next few days managing Doris's business. On Friday, October 5th, 1990, they worked all day and then called it quits in the late afternoon. They are alleged to have arrived at Doris's home between 5.30 and 6 p.m. for dinner. At the Tawasin Ferry Terminal, the 3 p.m. ferry from Victoria arrived at around 4.45 p.m. At around 5 p.m., two young men flagged a taxi from the Tawasin Ferry Terminal. They directed the driver to drop them off near the Safeway at Tawasin Mall, which is a 10-minute walk from Doris's home. Meanwhile, in Victoria, Darren was hanging out with his girlfriend Amanda at his home in Ten Mile Point. They ate dinner and then watched TV. His stepdad, Ralph, was also there. Back in Tawasin, at around 6 p.m., two witnesses who were children saw two young men walking around near Doris's home. They were said to have appeared lost. Just after 6 p.m., the two young men presented themselves at Doris's home. It's been assumed that the two women must have known these young men as they were invited in for dinner. Sharon and Doris were in the middle of making dinner, so with the arrival of two new guests, they set the dinner table for four people. Sharon went into the living room and Doris remained in the kitchen while the two boys sat at the table. One of the boys took two crowbars out of a knapsack. He placed one in his lap and gave the other to his friend. Sharon then came back from the kitchen. The boys stood up with their concealed crowbars at their side. One of the boys walked up behind Doris and began hitting her in the head with the crowbar. The other teen attacked Sharon. They beat Sharon and Doris until they were unconscious. The two young men then armed themselves with kitchen knives from Doris's kitchen and began stabbing the two women in the throat until they died. The young men then made an attempt to make the scene look like a robbery by ransacking areas of the home. They dumped purses, grabbed cash, and traveler's checks. However, jewelry and other valuable items were not stolen. At around 6.45 p.m., a male voice who used the name Dave called a taxi to the Tawasin Mall. A driver picked up the two young men who were in a hurry to catch the 7 p.m. ferry back to Victoria. Due to large volumes of traffic for the Thanksgiving weekend, the ferry was late by about 30 minutes. According to the driver, he dropped the two young men off in time to catch the ferry. On the morning of Saturday, October 6, 1990, the bodies of Doris Leatherbarrow and Sharon Huneman were discovered in the kitchen of Doris's home. Doris still had a kitchen knife in her throat. Both women had cloths placed over their faces. Four pieces of lasagna were ready to be put on plates. On the stove was one pot of beets and a pot of beans. Inside the home was a front door key that Doris usually had hidden under a rock outside the house. Also, a size 10 footprint was found at the scene. The medical examiner put their time of death between 5.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. the night before. 
News of the murders shocked the small community of Tawasin and British Columbia as a whole. The police jumped into action being led by the Delta Police Department. They immediately notified Ralph, Sharon's husband, and Darren, Sharon's son, in Victoria that Sharon and Doris had been murdered in Tawasin. Police looked in a few directions early in the investigation, including Sharon's husband, Ralph. Ralph was never really a suspect, but it was common, and still is common, for police to, at the very least, ask the husband some questions. Another man's name rose to the top of the suspect list. Since he was never convicted or charged, we will not be using his name. However, it was rumored that he was in a very hotly contested civil battle with Sharon and Doris. But as the investigation moved on, he was no longer considered a suspect. While checking in with Ralph Huneman and Darren Huneman, the police were able to establish an alibi for both the husband and the son. Darren had been at home with his girlfriend Amanda at the time of the murders, and Ralph was also at home with them. It was not long before the police investigation revealed two crucial facts. The first was that as a result of the murders, that Darren Huneman was the principal heir of his grandmother's substantial fortune. This evidence was given by Doris's sister, who was appointed executrix in her will. It was established that her estate had an estimated value of $4 million, the bulk of which, in the event of the death of Sharon, would pass on to Darren when he turned 25 years old. In the interim, under the terms of the will, he was to receive her car, her house, and its contents, as well as the proceeds of a $200,000 policy of life insurance. The second crucial fact was that for many months preceding the murders, that Darren had told a number of persons that if he killed his granny, he would inherit all of her money. There were various witnesses to whom such statements were made, including one person who was offered $10,000 to do it. They included a classmate and four slightly older friends with whom he played Dungeons and Dragons with. Although the evidence from his stepfather and others suggested a loving and close relationships between him and the victims, the investigation in the weeks following the murders led the police in the direction of Darren and his two close friends, Derek Christopher Lord and David Muir, as the principal suspects in the case. As a result, all three were interviewed by the police. So it turns out that they were all each other's alibi. A detective spoke with Derek Lord, stating that they were investigating the murder of Huneman's mother and grandmother, and they wanted to speak to him. The detective asked Derek if he knew Darren's mother, and Derek smiled and replied to words to the effect of, yes, she was a nice lady. The detective then asked Derek general questions relating to the names of friends of Darren, and if there were any rumors at the school concerning the murder, or if he had any suspicions. He answered in the negative, and he did not appear nervous. He said that he had never been to the Leather Barrow home in Tawasin, but he had gone to Tawasin one week before with David Muir. The reason, he said, was to see the Tawasin Mall. This was the first time the staff sergeant had heard the name David Muir. At the conclusion of the interview, he asked Lord what he was doing on October 5th, and he related the following. He stated that Darren had picked David and Derek up at around 8 p.m. They were both in downtown Victoria at the time. Amanda was with Darren, and they drove around Victoria's Chinatown until about 9.30. 
Then they dropped off David Muir at his home, followed by Derek Lord at his home, and this was around 10.30 or 10.15. When David Muir was interviewed, he told the police that on October 5th, he and Lord were driven to downtown Victoria by Darren, where the two of them walked around, looked at shops until around 7.30 or 8 p.m., at which time they met up again with Darren and Amanda, and all four of them went out to eat at a restaurant. And then afterwards, they drove around for a while, and they all ended up home around 10, 10.30. Darren and Amanda told investigators that they drove Derek and David to downtown Victoria in the afternoon of October 5, 1990. Darren and Amanda went back to Darren's home to eat, Meanwhile, Derek and David claimed that they walked around Victoria checking out stores until around 8 p.m. when they called Darren from a payphone for a drive. Darren and Amanda drove to downtown Victoria to pick up David and Derek. The four of them hung out for a while while driving around Victoria. Darren states that he wanted to look at houses in a new neighborhood, so he took his friends for a drive. Eventually, around 10 p.m., they dropped Derek and David off. Investigators obtained photos of Muir and Lord for the purposes of a photo lineup for the Tawasan taxi driver and other witnesses in Doris's neighborhood. The police believe that they had a positive ID on one or both boys. However, this has been disputed as the witness said it could be him or this one rings a bell. With this evidence, they spoke again to David Muir. Police told David that they now had a witness placing him in Tawasan on the night of the murders. After police divulged this information to David, they also placed wiretaps on David, Derek, Darren, and Amanda. Police monitored a flurry of phone calls between the teens. The exact contents of these phone calls have never been made public. These conversations tended to show that all were concerned about the police investigation and they contained much discussion about whether they should change their story, which was presumed to be a reference to their alibi. By November 14th, the police had learned that Derek and David had traveled to Tawasan as foot passengers on the ferry on September 21st, and that they had been picked up by a taxi at a location near the Leatherbarrow residence and driven back to the ferry terminal in time to catch the 7 p.m. ferry. So the question is, why were they near Doris's home two weeks before she was murdered? Well, according to Derek and David, they did travel to Tawasan on September 21st to see the mall. By November 16th, the focus of the investigation was directed at the three boys, with police surveillance cars following their every move. A witness came forward around this time. A university student who had formerly gone to the same school as Derek Lord positively identified him as a passenger that she had seen on the 7 p.m. ferry from Tawasan on October 5th, the night of the murders. She remembered the occasion in particular because it was the Thanksgiving holiday weekend and the ferry was running about a half hour late that night and did not arrive back to Victoria until 9 p.m. David Muir was again interviewed by the police on November 22nd, 1990. Police explained to him that he had been positively ID'd in a photo lineup. It has been reported that this is when some cracks started to appear in the story and that David may have confessed in some part to the murders. Derek Lord was then again interviewed by the police on November 25, 1990. Darren Huneman was also interviewed. He admitted driving Lord and Muir to the ferry terminal in Schwartz Bay on both September 21st and on October 5th. 
He also admitted to picking them up later, the same evening, on both dates. On each occasion, he understood that they were going to rent a post office box in Point Roberts so that they could order pornographic films from the United States. Amanda was interviewed by police on October 6th, October 30th, and then again on November 16th. At the end of October, Darren broke up with Amanda. Amanda, who was 17 at the time, admitted that this upset her. She stated that she was angry, confused, and upset when Darren broke off their relationship. It should be noted that none of these interviews with the teens were recorded on audio or video in 1990 when they occurred. On November 28, 1990, Amanda was brought in for another police interview. This interview lasted from 10.30 p.m. until 2.30 a.m. Her final witness statement was signed at 3.30 a.m. During this interview, police suggested to her that she could be charged as an accessory after the fact. She then gave the police the information that would solidify what they had suspected. She spoke about a series of conversations with Darren between early July and September 21, 1990, in which he described his intention to kill both his mother and grandmother in order to inherit the latter's estate. He also told her that Lord and Muir would do the actual killing. He described in detail how they would commit the crimes and how he had promised to reward each for their role by giving them property purchased by him from the proceeds of his grandmother's estate. Darren discussed with David and Derek various plans. The plans included blowing up his mother's home at a time when it would be occupied by his mother, his grandmother, and his stepfather. A somewhat similar plan involved the blowing up of the family car. A further plan involved Darren Huneman leaving the burglar alarm at the home disconnected so that David and Derek could enter and kill the occupants. Eventually, all the foregoing plans were abandoned because Mrs. Leatherbarrel seldom stayed with the Hunemans in Victoria. Another plan was also devised. Darren knew that his mother journeyed to Tawasson every two weeks and stayed with his grandmother for two or three days. He planned with David and Derek that they would take the ferry from Victoria and visit Doris Leatherbower's home on the pretext that they were in the Lower Mainland for some purpose and they decided to just pay a social call. They were well known to Sharon due to their friendship with Darren. They anticipated a warm welcome. Once they gained admission to the home, they intended to swiftly kill the two women with crowbars, which they would take with them for the occasion. They would then finish the job with two knives that they expected to find in the kitchen of the home. They planned to wear gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints and to leave the home in a state of disarray to simulate a robbery and a murder. The plan involved the two taking the 3 p.m. ferry to Tawasson and to return on the 7 p.m. sailing. Darren would then meet David and Derek at the ferry at approximately 8.35 p.m. And then, with the assistance of his girlfriend Amanda, would set up an alibi that all four of them were together in downtown Victoria during the murders. The plan was originally put into operation on September 21st, 1990. On that day, David and Derek went by ferry to Tawasson, but could not locate the Leather Barrel home. They returned to Schwartz Bay and reported to Darren that their mission had failed. Amanda described how, on September 21st, she accompanied Darren to the ferry terminal to pick up both Lord and Muir, and how Darren became angry when they reported that they had been unable to find the mailbox. Darren later explained to her that the reference to the mailbox was his grandmother's house, which they had not been able to locate. 
he went on to describe in detail how Lord and Muir had traveled to Tawasin on that date for the express purpose of carrying out the planned execution, and how it had been intended that they would gain entry to the house, kill the two women, make the crime look like a robbery, and then return to the ferry. He also advised her that they would have to do it for sure on October 5th, the next time his mother and grandmother would be together in Tawasin. This is because his grandmother was about to go away on a trip. Amanda then stated that on October 5th, she accompanied Darren to the ferry terminal where they once again picked up Lord and Muir. The ferry was late and did not arrive until 9 p.m. During the ride back from the ferry, Lord and Muir described in detail how they had carried through their plan, which Darren had described to her two weeks earlier. The following is an excerpt from the transcript of the interview with the police and Amanda. We arrived at the ferry about 10 minutes after 9. We had to wait for David Muir and Derek Lord to meet us. We sat in the car and waited. Darren finally got out of the car. He went to the outside parking area so they could see him. Derek and Dave finally arrived and they got into the back seat. Were they excited? Dave was excited. Derek was calm. We began driving. Darren asked, how did it go? Dave said, oh, it went fine. Darren asked, so it's done then? Dave answered, yes, Darren, it's done. He seemed very agitated. Darren asked, what happened? Someone, Dave or Derek said, what do you mean? Darren said, did you have any trouble finding the house? Dave said, yeah, a little bit because the streets are so weird in Tawasin. One of them said Mrs. Huneman answered the door and was surprised to see them, but invited them in anyway. They said they were in Tawasin to see Derek's dad and decided to drop by because they had the address from Darren. As both were talking about this, it's hard for me to recall who said what. I do remember Dave spoke about the excuse for being in Tawasin. Dave said that they were invited in by Mrs. Huneman into the living room. He said Mrs. Huneman and Mrs. Leatherbarrow were being very nice to them. Derek said, yeah, they even offered us lasagna. And Dave said, yeah, Darren, they were even going to drive us home. He then laughed. Darren asked, when did you find the opportunity to do it? Derek said, someone left the room while one of the women remained in the living room, I believe. He said they pulled out their crowbars and Derek was holding his behind his leg. Dave said, I was holding mine on my lap. Dave then said Mrs. Huneman came back into the room and they walked up to them. Derek hit Mrs. Huneman while Dave hit Mrs. Leatherbarrow with the crowbars. Dave bragged, I put a one-inch hole in Granny's head. Darren asked them if they fought back. Derek said Mrs. Huneman wouldn't die. He hit her. She was lying on the floor asking, why are you doing this? He said he had to cut her jugular vein and it took him a while to find it. Derek said that when he cut her jugular, some blood squirted. Dave said, yeah, and some got on my shoes. Darren asked, on your jacket? Derek said, yeah, some got on my jacket. Darren then said, well, you're going to have to burn them and anything else that had gotten anything on it. Dave said he didn't care and he would be able to buy a new pair soon. Derek didn't want to burn his jacket as his mother would know it was missing. Darren asked, do you think it will come out then? Dave said, oh yeah, sure, it'll come out. Derek mentioned again what Mrs. Huneman had said. Darren asked, are you sure they were dead when you left? Both answered at the same time, yes, Darren, they were. Darren asked if they had gotten rid of the crowbars and the gloves. 
Derek said he dropped the stuff over the side of the ferry in the bag. Dave said, yeah, it hit the side. He again laughed. Darren asked if it had sunk. Dave said, Darren, it had two crowbars in it. Of course it sank. Amanda, did Dave or Derek mention anything about Mrs. Huniman or Mrs. Leatherbarrow looking at them while they lay unconscious? Yes, they said they took towels and put them over their face so they wouldn't look at them, and they stabbed them near their face. Did they say they had any problem killing them? Derek said he had a problem killing Mrs. Huniman. How about Dave? He said he had no problem, put a one-inch hole in her head, and she was down. Did they steal anything? They said they couldn't find any money under the stove, but there was money taken from both of the women's purses. How much money? I don't know. A lot. Well over a thousand dollars. Were you given anything by Dave or Derek on this particular night? Yes. Derek gave me a box of chocolate-covered almonds. Where is it now? It's gone. I threw it in the garbage after Mom and I ate them. Any money given to you on that night? No. No way. Did you see the money? Yeah. They counted the money and divided it up. I didn't get any and I didn't want any. Did they mention anything to you about a key? Yes, the key. Darren told them the key was under the wood pile or it was very close to the wood pile. They said they dropped this key in the room where the bodies were. Did they say how they left the house? They said they opened up drawers and made a mess to make it look like a burglary. They said they toppled some chairs. How did they leave? I know, but I can't remember right now. Did they think they were seen? No, they didn't think anyone saw them. How did they get to the ferry terminal in Tawasson? They walked to town, and there they called a cab. Did Darren appear happy that it finally occurred? No. He actually seemed to regret it. He mentioned it was his mother and grandmother. His mother had nurtured him for 18 years. He said this about two or three times. This is while we drove. While you drove with Dave and Derek, how was Dave reacting? He was very excited. He seemed absolutely thrilled that it had happened. What about Derek Lord? He was very quiet and obviously upset about it. If you asked him, how are you doing, he would reply, I'm still alive. Then what happened? We had to drop off Dave first because he was late. I don't know where we dropped him off. It may have been a street by his house. We then drove around with Derek for a while. After this interview and before the trial, it was learned that Darren had promised Derek and David rewards for killing his grandmother and mother. For David, he would receive a cabin in the woods and about $100,000. For Derek, he would become Darren's bodyguard and also receive land in Souk, British Columbia. Both men were promised monthly salaries and cars. On November 29, 1990, the police arrested 18-year-old Darren Huneman, 16-year-old David Muir, and 17-year-old Derek Lord on two counts of first-degree murder. While awaiting the trial, Darren's behavior became more erratic. There was evidence of a telephone conversation that Darren had with one of his friends after he was charged, in which he described how he intended to attack the credibility of various witnesses by using personal history on their background. As well, two witnesses who were incarcerated in the Wilkinson Road jail with Darren while he was awaiting trial had some interesting things to say. One spoke of a conversation in which Darren apparently asked him to get rid of a witness. The other stated that Darren actually offered him $10,000 to kill Amanda, 
preferably by having her shot on the courthouse steps. It was decided that two trials would occur, one for Darren Huneman as the mastermind and a second trial for Derek and David. At issue, of course, was the age of the offenders. It was requested that for Derek and David that a youth court trial would be appropriate. However, judges dismissed this request and demanded that the teens stand trial as adults. Darren's trial was first. As he was 18, there was no argument and he would appear in adult court. The majority of the case against him hinged on Amanda's testimony, as well as the testimony of several other witnesses to whom he spoke of killing his mother and grandmother. There was no physical, financial, or forensic evidence that really proved he was the mastermind of the whole thing. Darren entered a plea of not guilty. He did not enter a not guilty plea by reason of diminished capacity. Instead, his lawyer's defense was based on reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence. The medical evidence presented at trial suggests that for many months prior to the date of the murders, to an increasing extent as that date approached, that Darren was suffering from a severe form of narcissistic personality disorder, which at various times impaired his capacity to differentiate reality from fantasy. Darren was also prone to experiencing violent fantasies, one of which involved the murder of his mother and grandmother. He had unusual talents in fantasy elaboration, which brought him a good deal of attention from his peers and enabled him to enlist others, such as David and Derek, into those fantasies. These violent fantasies provided him with immediate euphoric arousal and excitement. Apparently, the more he fantasized and the more violent the fantasies, the greater the arousal and the excitement. The medical witnesses concur in their opinion that the mental disorder suffered by Darren in the months leading up to the murders and indeed afterwards, were not such as to render him incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of his acts or of knowing that his acts were wrong. The medical evidence is perhaps best summarized by the following excerpts from the November 8, 1993 report of Dr. O'Shaughnessy. Although Mr. Huneman would not, in my opinion, fulfill the test for not criminally responsible under the criminal code, it is my opinion that his mental state was severely impaired throughout the previous months to the murders. Darren entered a statement denying that he had anything to do with the murders. He denied talking of killing his grandmother, saying that any such statements were taken out of context and were only made as a part of the role he was playing in the game Dungeons & Dragons. He said he had no need to kill his grandmother for money, since all he had to do was ask her for it and she would give him whatever he wanted. He did admit to driving Derek and David to the ferry terminal in Schwartz Bay on both September 21st and October 5th and picking them up later in the evening on both dates. He stated that on October 31st, he had a conversation with Derek who admitted that he and David had killed his mother and grandmother. According to Darren... Derek said they were in the midst of robbing the Leather Barrow home when they were surprised by the arrival at the house of his mother and Mrs. Leather Barrow. When they realized that his mother recognized them, they panicked and killed both women. In a later conversation, Darren alleges David confirmed Derek's statements to him. Darren said he kept silent about these confessions because both Derek and David threatened to make statements about him and also because he got mad at the police because of how they were conducting the investigation. When asked why Amanda would give the evidence that she did, Darren suggested that perhaps she was frightened or that Lord and Muir had told her something other than what was true. 
He denied any discussion with the fellow inmates in which he allegedly offered to pay to have Amanda killed. The jury deliberated for three hours and came back with their verdict. On June 28, 1991, Darren Huneman was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder in relation to the killing of his mother and grandmother. Darren was sentenced to life in prison with no options of parole for 25 years. The trial then began for David Muir and Derek Lord. Both defendants pled not guilty. Their lawyers also used the defense of reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence. Their case relied heavily on closing arguments to be the bulk of their defense. Much of the Crown's case against the teens was already tested in the conviction of Darren Huneman. The case relied primarily on witness testimony and the testimony of Amanda. There was no physical evidence linking them to the scene. The size 10 footprint at the scene did not match either Lord, who was a size 9, or Muir, who was a size 8. There was no forensic evidence, DNA, blood, or applicable fibers. But there were witnesses who saw them in the neighborhood and taking taxis. One witness saw them on the ferry on October 5th. Derek Lord stated that he was not guilty. Derek Lord now claims that he was at home at 8.30 p.m. on the night of the murders. This statement was now being corroborated by his family members. Eloise Lord, Derek's mother, testified that she was with Derek and David on the night of the murders at her home at 8.30 p.m. in Victoria, British Columbia. After the trial, Eloise Lord was investigated for perjury and was terminated from her job at a Catholic school. The jury in their case deliberated for one evening and one morning and came back with the verdict. At the conclusion of the trial, Derek Lord and David Muir were found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. After the trial, David Muir admitted guilt for the murders. Due to both boys being under the age of 18, they received a lighter sentence. They were both sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 10 years. As these three teens grew into men behind bars, they had vastly different experiences. Darren Huneman launched unsuccessful appeals that pointed at judicial errors and attacked the credibility of his ex-girlfriend, Amanda. In 1995, Darren Huneman escaped from prison in British Columbia. He, along with two other men, injured a guard and led police on a high-speed car chase. Eventually, he was brought back to prison. He continued to have behavioral issues while in prison. He was transferred multiple times, serving his time in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. He also continued to maintain his innocence. David Muir admitted to his part in the murders shortly after the trial. By all reports, he kept his head down and did his time. Derek Lord is a whole story unto itself. Derek never admitted guilt. Keep in mind he could have received parole at the 10-year mark. Instead, he decided it was better to maintain his innocence and serve the entire life sentence in Canada. Derek served the majority of his time in Matsqui Prison to be closer to his parents in B.C. His parents, David and Eloise Lord, sold their home and moved to Chilliwack to be closer to the prison and to fund his appeals. His family has maintained that Derek is completely innocent of all charges. It has been reported that they have spent $860,000 on legal fees and private investigators for their son. The Lords have given many interviews to journalists over the years in their attempts to cast doubt on their son's guilty convictions from 1992 and to advance what they say is a more likely story. According to an article in the National Post, 
Their account involves wild claims and conspiracies. The Lords say that two university students from China murdered Doris and Sharon. They say that the assailants were brought over for the murder by a Canadian businessman recruited by Ottawa to spy on the Chinese government. It's not a fantasy we've invented, says David Lord. We think the RCMP know who did the murders, and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service has that information. David Lord has been banned from seeing his son at Masqui Prison. He has been arrested and charged for trespassing multiple times at Masqui and the Kent Institute. The Lord family have protested outside of institutions where Derek has been incarcerated. His sister was also arrested and put in cuffs and leg chains in an altercation at one of the prisons. Eloise, Derek's mother, takes to her blog to point out inconsistencies in the investigation and trial. In one blog post titled, Evidence Really Can Lie, she states the following, The sloppiness of the Delta Police investigation into the murders of Doris Leatherbarrow and Sharon Huneman, which led to the arrest and conviction of the three teenage boys, is one of those things that will not let one be soothed. It was absolutely dreadful. The police coerced witnesses, made up evidence, misplaced evidence, lost evidence, hid evidence, and mishandled the entire case. She even points the finger at Ralph Huneman, Darren's stepfather, stating that he showed absolutely no remorse and did not appear to be upset with the news of the murders. She also claims in her blog that Ralph had been through this before when his first wife died in 1975. Eloise questions the quality of the eyewitnesses who placed the boys in Tawasin. She also attacks the credibility of Amanda, whose statements changed multiple times during the investigation. And lastly, Eloise points to the lack of physical evidence that puts her son Derek at the scene of the murders. She claims that the paint found in Doris's skull does not match that of commonly used crowbars. She states that hair evidence at the scene was not tested or was hidden. The Lords also claim that selective wiretaps were released, but not all. Selective witnesses' statements were provided to the Crown. They claim that evidence was hidden, including video evidence, police notes, and payphone records from the ferry. In another blog post, Eloise writes, Because Derek has been wrongfully convicted, he is spending much more prison time than someone who confesses to a crime. He cannot lie well. He refuses to make a false confession just to get out of prison. So he stays. He has grown up inside those walls. Fortunately, he has family support. He will have a job almost immediately in carpentry. He will have guidance to set up his living quarters, his bank account, his budget, and all those other things we take for granted by the time we reach our 30s. The current parole board cannot see past a confession. It violates the Criminal Code of Canada to use imprisonment in order to coerce a confession, but they do it anyway. So it is now 2022, and much has evolved in this case. In 2003, Lord and Muir were both eligible for parole after 10 years because they were young offenders. Derek Muir admitted guilt in this case. He did his time. He apologized. He acted well in prison, and in 2003, he was granted parole at the 10-year mark of his incarceration. David Muir has stayed out of the media since his release. The only statement he has made was to say that he is sorry and that he knows what he did was wrong to the victims and their family members. Derek Lord continued to fight what he felt was a wrongful conviction 
As a result, when he faced the parole board at the 10-year mark, his parole was denied. This continued every two years, until 2020, when he was granted day parole under strict conditions. The terms of this day parole gave him 10 months of freedom to work at a work camp. In total, Derek Lord spent close to 30 years in prison. In 2020, 30 years after the murders, parole board members were satisfied that Lord had begun a successful initial transition to the community on day parole, and he showed commitment and focus on future change. A parole board decision stated, The board is aware that such future change will be very gradual, given your ingrained personality issues that have been detailed in this report, and in particular, because of your persistence in claiming your innocence of your crimes, despite clear evidence to the contrary. Lord, who discovered his Métis heritage while in prison, must continue to live at an Indigenous residential facility. Overnight leave is not authorized. Lord is prohibited from having any contact with the victim's families, including extended family members and Crown witnesses. He is not allowed to travel to Vancouver Island or the Lower Mainland. Derek Lord is now married and has a son. In 2003, Darren Huneman admitted complete guilt in the murder of his mother and grandmother. Perhaps he was inspired by David Muir, who was released in 2003. In August of 2021, two months shy of 31 years since the murders, Darren Huneman was granted unescorted leaves to a halfway house as the parole board continues to transition him back into society. Darren is now using his biological father's name and goes by Darren Gowan. He now lives in Quebec. After a hearing in Quebec where he was in a minimum security correctional facility, the board granted Darren one two-day unescorted temporary absences per month at a community residential facility or halfway house. Beginning with two two-day absences, the parole board states that these halfway house stays could increase to three days if things go well. Ed Biketta, Doris Leatherbarrow's brother-in-law, said he wasn't surprised at the parole board decisions. I knew it was going to happen, he said. These guys should have never got out of jail at all. Now with all three of them out, it's getting to a bit of closure because we won't be going to the hearings every two years. Mr. Biketta has attended the trials, the appeals, and the parole board hearings, often presenting victim impact statements on behalf of the families for the last 30 years. All three men are now in their late 40s after starting their incarceration as teens. Well, this brings us to the end of our first ever Patreon episode. Thank you so much for joining us and for subscribing. We will be back soon with more bonus content as well as our regularly scheduled episodes. So until then, take care of yourselves and each other. 